In this week's Books Podcast, we celebrate Super Thursday, the biggest day of the year in UK publishing, with travel journalist Simon Reeve and his memoir Step by Step, and Neil McGregor on his successor to the history of the world in 100 objects. We bring you talking mummies, mammoth horn sculptures, ethical tourism, and the joys of Bill Bryson. Where else can you find that kind of range? All in this week's Super Guardian Superbook Super Podcast. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian podcast that delights in delving deep into the long, labyrinthine and, let's be frank, not altogether attractive innards of Brexit, all so that you don't have to. I'm John Henley, and yes, we're back. After an extended summer break during which your host moved countries, and as is all too common in Brexit land, an awful lot seemed to happen, but not very much actually did. Here's a lightning rundown of where things stand. So, Britain is still set to leave the EU on March 29th, 2019, less than six months away, but the Irish border problem still has not been solved, and we still have no idea whatsoever what the future trading relationship between the UK and the EU might actually look like, largely because Theresa May still cannot choose between the two types of Brexit that are still, in essence, all the EU is offering and all it can offer under the structure of laws and regulations it's built on and which Britain, don't forget, helped to erect. Namely, a clean break, followed by a more distant Canada-plus-style free trade agreement or a much more closely aligned Norway-style arrangement, effectively staying in the single market and some kind of customs union. Now, you can't really blame the PM for this because neither option comes cost-free and her Conservative Party, not to mention the country as a whole, is still so bitterly divided over Brexit that as soon as she plumps for one over the other, she's toast. The one advance of note over the summer, though it wasn't really one, was May's announcement of her so-called Chequers plan, effectively the government's attempt to dodge the Canada-Norway dilemma. In essence, this is an imaginative exercise in having cakes and eating them that involves staying close to the EU's single market with a common rulebook in goods but not in services, and a creative, I hope you heard the inverted commas, customs arrangement aimed at at least semi-sorting the Ireland issue. Now, that all cost May two cabinet ministers and has since been denounced by Brexiteers as not delivering Brexit and by Remainers as pie in the sky. The EU27, meanwhile, remember them, they're the ones who will basically decide what kind of Brexit Britain gets, confirmed at an exciting summit just recently in Salzburg what everyone already knew, namely that the economic and trade proposals at the core of the Chequers plan would undo the integrity of the single market and so are not acceptable. And that is pretty much where we are. The clock, as European Council President Donald Tusk hasn't said very recently, but is no doubt thinking, is still ticking. The EU has said it wants to see real progress on resolving the Northern Ireland question by the October 18 Brussels summit, or there's no chance at all of a mooted extra November summit, at which the withdrawal agreement will supposedly be signed off, even happening. Speculation about a no-deal Brexit is mounting on both sides of the channel. So the question is... What next? With me to ponder where things might go from here are, on the line from Cambridge, Professor of EU Law Catherine Barnard, from Brussels, The Guardian's Jennifer Rankin, and in the studio, Jonathan Liss from the think tank British Influence. Welcome all. 
Now, before we get into the long grass, I'd just like to touch on a little bit of diplomatic actuality. Um, as we record this, the Conservative Party conference is in full swing, and it seems to me that there's been more than the usual amount of EU bashing from ministers and ex-ministers. The Foreign Secretary equating the EU to the Soviet Union, describing the UK as its prisoner. The Brexit Secretary saying it was time for the EU to get serious in negotiations, and implying its approach was the opposite of the constructive, pragmatic and respectful respectful one adopted by the UK. Um, Jennifer, I mean, I think it's worth asking, at such an important and sensitive time in the talks, I mean, is this really helpful and how has it gone down in Brussels? Well, very bluntly, not, not at all helpful. Um, here is Jeremy Hunt, um, the Foreign Secretary, who was, who was seen as the, the person who would be the sort of grown-up politician taking charge of the Foreign Office after Boris Johnson's time in office and was, was welcomed around the Foreign Office and in other European capitals with being that, uh, that replacement. And yet now he, he comes and says the, the European Union is, is uh, like a prison, that the UK is a prisoner, and uh, the EU wants to punish the, the UK. And predictably, there's been a very uh, sharp uh, reaction to this, especially from uh, officials, politicians, who remember growing up in the Soviet Union or in countries that were controlled by the Soviet Union. So there's been some really very striking comments. In particular, one that stood out for me was the uh, uh, Lithuania's EU commissioner, Vitinus Andrukaitis, and he, um, in a very striking tweet, said he was born in a Soviet gulag and imprisoned many times, by, or a few times, by the KGB in his life, and said to Jeremy Hunt, happy to brief you on the main differences between the EU and Soviet Union any time, whatever helps. And we had uh, more of the same, as well as condemnation from former heads of, of the Foreign Office. So really, there was a very strong reaction to Jeremy Hunt's comments, which I think took EU officials off guard, because in a sense, everyone was expecting there would be a lot of rhetoric and noise coming out of the Tory party conference. But this was seen as sort of going beyond the bounds of acceptable and really, really quite surprising. Okay. But it has to be said, just very briefly, yeah. that it's not actually seen as going to have a negative impact on the Brexit negotiations. As one diplomat put it, yes, the comments were very stupid, but I don't think it will change anything. As we know, the, the negotiations have their own dynamic, led by Dominic Raab and, and, and Michel Barnier. So, so I think that will sort of, they will continue without any um, reverberations from Jeremy Hunt's okay. comments. Okay, jolly good. I mean, Jonathan, I mean, you know, obviously, you expect this kind of stuff at a Tory party conference, to some extent these are these are politicians playing to the gallery but i mean do you think it says anything more broadly about about what you might call a government strategy or even that britain's whole sort of attitude to the eu what does it reveal well i mean it reveals sort of the things that we were talking about two years ago when we thought we'd left this behind after theresa may's infamous 2016 speech um it's sort of the the uk simply not understanding the dynamics not understanding its partners not wanting to understand it thinking that a bit of right-wing Viagra for its nationalist base <laughs> is not going to be noticed by people in the EU. That Europeans thinking, don't speak English. Right, thinking <laughs> that it won't be broadcast uh, around Europe, thinking that people aren't paying attention. It's just it's just so foolish more than anything. It's so unnecessary. You can rally the base by saying we're going to live on Brexit. You don't need to insult people. And particularly, you don't need to demean and trivialise 
decades of totalitarianism, as Jennifer said, that is still very fresh in the minds of millions of EU citizens. So it's totally foolish. So I suppose what it shows is the government just doesn't learn anything. They may be panicking, but in response to that panic, they simply double down and they simply get foolisher and foolisher and they're not helping themselves and they never have. Yeah. Catherine, I mean, do you, I mean, Jennifer touched on this, but do you think there's a risk it might play into the negotiations at all? Or, or are, are there, is everything kind of so, so set on its track now that it, that it really can't be derailed? I think it, it, it probably won't affect the negotiations as such. What is striking to me is that the EU27 have really very much lined up behind the Commission's approach, the Commission led by Michel Barnier, and therefore they are willing to let him um, take the flak and therefore they're not going to put their heads above the parapet. I think it's also worth bearing in mind, however, that EU politicians do read the British press. They do not understand the British press. And of course, Jeremy Hunt and others are talking to the British press and not to the European press. It is also worth bearing in mind, I think, that for Romania, Bulgaria, Uh, these countries had already conceded a great deal in the Brussels negotiations. Now, you remember those, those are the negotiations that David Cameron led back in 2016 to try and put some limits on free movement of persons so he could come back to the British electorate and say we've got a we've got a deal from Brussels. Now it's not clear how whether they really would be prepared to go the extra mile against this context of abuse um, being levelled at them uh, from the UK. Yeah, so so unwise all round, really, or at least not helpful, uh, certainly in the European context. Okay, now I, I, what I want to try and do, if we can, in this podcast, is is sketch out a kind of roadmap of where Brexit might go from here, or where the government's idea of Brexit might go from here, and when and how its plans might fall apart. Um, starting with the conference, I think that seems like you know that's where we are now, and the Tory party's internal divisions. I mean, it, it's it's very fairly clear uh, the prime minister is stuck in the middle uh, between Remainers like Dominic. Grieve, who are calling for a sort of a polite rebellion and a second vote, and the likes of Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who are saying that the, her checkers plan is 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 deranged or, or the deadest of dying ducks. Um, that was that was Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jonathan, what's your sense? I mean, is is checkers going to survive the conference and its immediate aftermath? I mean, just just that that deadline there. Um, I suppose it will. It will survive until it is uh, until we reach the crunch point of the October summit. I mean, it it died. It was dead on arrival. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's an ex parrot that was never even hatched. <laughs> um, so that so in that sense, uh, May has nowhere to go with it because she can't go back to Canada and she can't advance to sort of Norway plus customs union. Obviously, so she still she has to stay where she is. People ask why isn't she moving? Because the only way for her to go is toast. Um, so she has to. So of course it'll survive the conference. I'm sure she'll. Uh, you know the conference they'll they'll make some uh, some placatory statements about uh, checkers and how they're still going to try and get a negotiation. But fundamentally, the the situation is the same as it has been for months, which is that she'll have to choose between the full soft Brexit. Single market and customs union, or that border in the Irish Sea, which the EU is doing its best to dramatise, and that looks the likeliest option. But it's still a huge risk. Yeah. Okay, Catherine. I mean, you know, we, 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 all these fringe events that are happening at, at the conference and 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 um, the likes of uh, of Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg really capitalising to the best of their abilities. I mean, the Conservatives are plainly as divided over Europe as they've ever been. Can this ever be resolved? Is this a party that is destined to carry on rowing about Europe for as long as it exists? 
Well, I think the answer might be yes, because I think <laughs> what we do see um, uh, at the moment is that the party itself is, of course, bitterly divided. You've got uh, the, I think, probably majority of Brexit supporting MPs, but actually um, a, a key cohort of Remain supporting MPs. And those MPs have been subject to the most extraordinary abuse, particularly the women. And all of them are being subject at attempts to deselection. And so they already feel vulnerable from within and they see that their party is delivering on something that they don't approve of. And so I think the the, the divide in the party is pretty acute. And as David Cameron, of course, has famously said, I wish we'd stop banging on about Europe. I'm afraid I think banging on about Europe might last for a number of decades to come. come. Right. Um, and, and Jennifer, I mean... Uh... I imagine that Brussels and the EU capitals are, are, are watching events in, in Birmingham with considerable interest. I mean, how important is it seen there that the prime minister and the government emerge? I mean, you know, if not sort of covered in glory, at least in, are still intact. Yes, I mean, people certainly are, I think, on tenderhooks watching what is happening in the Conservative Party conference. And there was a view in the summer that after the conference, Theresa May would then have the the room to to be able to make compromises, to start moving in the EU's direction, and things would would be much simpler, and people were sounding quite optimistic. And I think that that mood changed after Chequers when they saw the the very sort of fierce reaction in in the British press, and then this very um, embattled Prime Minister, the the speech she gave on on Friday from down Street after the Salzburg summit, where she was uh, really, she really uh, came out swinging. Yeah, she, yeah. she really came out f- sort of fighting and for checkers, saying it was the it was the only plan available. So now I think there's there's more uncertainty. They don't really see there's uncertainty about whether she will be able to make um, any compromises with her party. They don't EU diplomats, that is, don't really fully know her, what her space, her room for manoeuvre is. So it, it just adds to the the uncertainty. And now we're, we're we are really are getting to the point in negotiations where time is beginning to run out very beginning to run very quickly well exactly i mean three weeks to to the october summit um and less than six months till brexit day all right well um if the consensus then at least around this table is that um the plan such as it is will survive for a little while longer its next hurdle is clearly going to be the eu 27 now there are two big problems with the checkers plan as the eu sees it and as it made very clear at that salzburg conference and indeed for a long time before first to quote donald tusk the key trade components on which is actually built, you know, will not work. And second, unless Northern Ireland basically stays in the single market and the customs union, which is anathema to, to, to the UK or to, to, to the May government, and there is no way, as Jonathan said, of avoiding um, a hard border or a border down the Irish Sea. Um, Catherine, Theresa May is supposedly, this is being flagged at the conference this week, going to announce some kind of new Irish border proposals. Is Chequers for you uh, so kind of fundamentally flawed from the EU's perspective that there's no chance of it of it really ever flying? Well, Chequers, of course, is meant to try and resolve the problem of the Irish border. And therefore, you don't have to go for the Northern Ireland backstop, which is that Northern Ireland stays in the customs union and the single market for goods and thus a border down the Irish Sea. But the problem is that Chequers is deeply unpopular from the Brexiteur side because it means that continued regulatory alignment with EU rules on goods. It's deeply unpopular on the Remain side because it's surrendered single market access in respect of services. 
and uh, free movement of persons. And it's deeply disliked on the EU side because it effectively means that the UK acts as border agent for and collects tariffs for both uh, UK and EU goods, which just the, the logistics of trying to work out where every single component of every single good on every single pallet on every single lorry, where they're heading to is so nightmarishly complicated that it just won't work. Leaving that aside, assuming you could overcome all of those <laughs> There is a, f a fundamental issue here that although it's quite easy to say goods and services are different, remember goods is in the checkers plan, services is out. In fact, it's very difficult to sort them out because if you think about it, if you're buying a lift, for example, or a computer system, the computer is a good, but the installation of the computer system, the network is a service, its maintenance is a service. And so what the EU is worried about is that the UK will gain a competitive advantage. Yes, we will align on the rules on goods, but we'll undercut in respect of services. And that's why they want us to have both continued alignment in respect of goods and services. Theresa May says no way. That's the problem with checkers. Right. Jennifer, um, from from sort of the Brussels perspective, which of the of, of Theresa May's red lines will really need to shift to make Brexit work? And by how much? I mean, what what, what are the concessions that, 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 that Britain will need to make to get something res at least remotely resembling checkers kind of over the over the line? Well, I think on um, on the Irish backstop issue, it, the EU is not only asking for the UK to shift its red lines, but really just to see the whole problem in a different light. And that's the whole the strategy of um, Barnier's de-dramatisation. He's saying, well, this, you know, this doesn't have to be, you know, a serious border. He's saying this doesn't uh, attack the, uh, the territorial integrity of the UK. And he's um, looked at all sorts of ways where the, the, the checks and uh, the customs controls could be really moved away from the border, either done by companies or through trusted trader schemes. So the EU certainly feels it's moved a lot to try and make that easier for, for the UK. But there's only one area where they say it's simply not possible to, to do away with, with checks and controls by the border. And that's, um, that, that comes back to, uh, to SPS. So um, or, or that awful um, acronym when we're talking about phytosanitary standards, oh, so yes. checks on on uh, on animals, plants, and uh, and food products. So that means that Northern Ireland would have to stay in the uh, in the EU customs union and subject to many single market rules because the EU thinks on this particular issue, when it comes to animals and 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 food and, and plants, there's just no other way of or way around it because otherwise the risk for the EU is then that they're getting lots of um, potentially dangerous or, or products that they've they don't want on their market. For example, the, the chlorinated chickens coming the from the US, which could be then relabeled yeah. and then come, come into the market via Ireland. That's certainly the, the fear anyway among EU diplomats. So that's why they, they really think they can't move on that point. So so when it comes to the Irish backstop, it really will come down, I think, to sort of cows and sheep um, travelling across the border under EU under EU rules and whether the British government can accept that. And, and the EU was saying, well, this is not an assault on your territorial integrity. This is something that would be very specific to Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland already has all sorts of um, specific um, legal regime within the context of the UK. So they would really like the, e the UK to see, or the British government to see Northern Ireland in a, in a different light. But so far, there's no sign of that from Theresa May. And then I think Catherine sort of summed up the other big point um, really well, that the, the EU has a big problem with splitting the, the single market. And they really are concerned about um, handing a competitive advantage to the UK 
so that's something they don't want to budge on. And I think for this reason, many are here are concluding that it will have to be a free trade agreement for, for Theresa May, and there's no other way around that. Jonathan, is that where we're heading? Um, well, one one point that Jennifer didn't make just now, which I think is actually one of the most most important points, is that if North, you can de-dramatise the Irish border all you want, the sea border that is, but if you have Northern Ireland staying in the EU Customs Union, that means that Northern Ireland will have to be exempt from the UK's future trade deals, and that really is a kind of a, an assault, as Theresa May would see it, on the UK's territorial integrity. So no one's talking not, about that right now. They're not wrong to talk about. It. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of Remainers would, would say there's all this stuff about you know the the, the United Kingdom, the the Union being dismantled, yeah. um, as a result of of, of 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 the evil EU's requirements is sort of overblown. But it, on that point, at least on that but, point, at least there will be a very very visible and substantive difference between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and that is why a lot of people. Are suggesting that maybe the customs union uh, red line will be the one to go because if Theresa May is is so keen on ending free movement to people, the single market will have to be out of the single market according to her. But the customs union might be something that the whole UK will, will be part of. But in, if you're in a single market, that still leaves you with the problem of uh, regulatory differences, and that takes you back again to the, the sea border, no matter how de-dramatised. And she has raised the stakes so many times that it just seems impossible to know how she can possibly climb down without having to bring her whole government down with her. Um, so that's so that's kind of um, where it seems uh, to be going. My gut, my gut feeling is that she will make a concession at the last minute, and if she doesn't, then we will sort of you know head into the abyss of a no deal scenario. But then Parliament will come up um, with various ways of combating that. We will not leave without a deal, and I know that sort of people are beginning to to waver on this. I'm sort of determined to hold my nerve. It just cannot happen. <laughs> Parliamentary reasons, if nothing else, inconceivable. Okay, well, we'll come back to what what the consequences might be be in Parliament at, at the end of the end of the show. Um, I just want to revisit a little bit um, these two the two options. Then the two you know which, have, which the EU have, has been very sort of upfront about from the start. Obviously, Norway style relationship, which you know, would certainly protect the UK economy um, and uh, go a very long way to solving the, the Irish border issue, but would almost certainly lead, for, for May at least, to a sort of instant leadership challenge, one imagines, the collapse of her government. And the, this Canada-style free trade agreement, which would give Britain more flexibility over its foreign trade deals, but raise barriers to trade with the EU. And, you know, as short of breaking up the United Kingdom, as the government's just put it, we just talked about with, with Jonathan, you know, do nothing really to solve that problem. So, but Jennifer, there, I'm just interested, there is still a fudge option, isn't there, which is sort of on the table, which is assuming that sort of some kind of Northern Ireland backstop can be agreed on and, and you know, Theresa May's red lines do get, do, do get fudged. Um, the the withdrawal agreement only has to have a political declaration on the future relationship. So that whole Norway-Canada question could theoretically be kind of kicked down the road. Now, how far is the EU or might the EU be happy to do that? Or to what extent do they want some kind of very clear parameters set beforehand? I think one of the interesting things about this political declaration is that we haven't seen any text yet and that uh, Michel Barnier's team are guarding the text very closely. It hasn't even been shared with EU diplomats. And now we really are running out of time because EU diplomats would like to see that text ahead of the EU summit in, uh, in just over two weeks' time. 
So it's so there's really not a lot of time actually to do a very long and uh, and complex document, and that's just uh, now the, the constraint that that everyone is facing. And I think it's true to say that there are many member states, France in particular, that would like something fairly specific, but only so their governments don't get caught out at a later stage, particularly during the European elections exactly. in May. And yeah. um, Emmanuel Macron doesn't want to be going to leading the charge in the European elections when he's giving Marine Le Pen the opportunity to say, well, look at the great deal that the UK is going to get. So I think the fact that France would like some specifics doesn't actually help Theresa May very much. And, and moreover, I, I think there probably will be some sort of detail on what that future relationship will look like, whether it's closer to Canada, whether it's closer to Norway. I'm sure that both sides will want that spelled out. But nonetheless, it's, it's not a legally binding document and it could be overturned. It, the EU has its own evolution clause, meaning it can sort of revisit the question, should the British government change its mind? And you already hear people here talking of Brexit 2.0. You know, they're hearing what Michael Gove is saying, uh, other, other similar ministers and thinking, well, the, maybe the one day, might be not very far in the future, there'll be mm. another British government with a, with a different mm. plan. Mm. Mm. Catherine, is it, I mean, you know, how, how set in stone are those two options, Canada and, and Norway? Is there a, you know, is there a sort of a middle way that might that might be acceptable? And what sort of might it look like, do you think? It might look like checkers. That's what Theresa <laughs> would say. And then we go we go round in a circle. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the problem yeah. because of the UK's current red lines. It looks like we are heading towards a Canada-style deal, which is, of course, what the, most of the Brexiteers want. Of course, the very hardest of Brexiteers say we don't really, we're not that fussed about a deal at all. We're happy to trade on WTO terms. But the, the interesting question is how much detail will be in this political declaration? Is it going to be 120 pages with a lot of detail, which obviously we've heard Macron wants, and also a lot of the leavers want because they want to make sure that there is no slippage down yeah, the line. Backsliding by the by the government, yeah. Into looking something more like Norway, or is it going to be 10 pages where it's pretty loose and leaves a lot to be kicked down the road? Now, the further complicating factor is that any deal on the withdrawal agreement—that's the divorce has got to be voted on by Parliament, the UK Parliament, and of course the European Parliament, but particularly the UK Parliament in this context has got to vote on the withdrawal agreement and also the political declaration. They come as a package. We also know that Labour have basically said they will vote against any future deal that doesn't deliver pretty much the same benefits as staying in the single market. So if Labour are as good as their word, they will vote against any future deal and therefore vote against uh, what Theresa May brings back. And then the question is, what's the point in the EU doing lots of negotiations on the content of the political declaration when it risks being voted down by a combination of Labour and the um, Brexit-supporting Tories? And so there is a real problem here, and particularly as they know that Michael Gove says, well, we'll re- renegotiate it anyway. Exactly. That's a very, very good point. And I mean, I was going to, we, let's move on now to the to, to Westminster, which I think you're absolutely right, is, and a lot of people f- say is, is is where the real battle will will actually come. As you say, with, you know, Labour effectively having said, yes, they, w- they will vote down whatever Theresa May comes back with. The Brexiteers in the ERG group 
supposedly being able to muster enough support to join them and and vote down a deal. There's also, I suppose, the possibility that, you know, a a deal could even be be voted down by a combination of Labour and moderate sort of pro-European Conservatives in Parliament. Um, Jonathan, let's just talk a little bit about how the the deal might collapse when it hits Parliament. Um, I mean, there is a risk for the Brexiters, isn't there, in voting down a deal? But, you know, the most likely one, I guess, being that it it would put their kind of Brexit, the Brexit they want, at risk. And also, basically, what what Labour wants out of all this, obviously, is a a general election, and that there there is a very real risk that that the Tory party might lose that election and and leave a kind of a hard-left government in in power for for many years to come. I mean, is that a risk that, that the Brexiters are prepared to take, do you think? Well, I suppose that Brexit is sort of becoming a game of uh, two games of chicken, in fact. The first one is between the UK and the EU, which the UK will always lose. But the second, more interesting one is the one between the government and the DUP and the Brexiters, the Tory Unionists and the Labour Party. Are they prepared <laughs> to get to sort of coalesce to bring down the government and then what comes next? Because, of course, they all want different things. So I mean, if you take the different scenarios, so Labour is perhaps banking on the fact that if May brings back a soft Brexit, for example, she'll be defenestrated before they even have to vote on that deal. So that's that's one route. If she brings that a, a, a de-dramatised sea border, is the DUP prepared to actually to fell her and risk the Corbyn government, which they'll despise? You'll have Tory unionists voting against that because they don't want to see the UK split up. You'll have people like Amber Rudd, very interestingly, saying that they'll vote against a Canada-style deal as well because that obviously doesn't deliver the integration that they think the economy needs. And so that's not because of the sea border, that's because of the, the Canada-style deal for, for Great Britain. And so it will go that way as well. And of course, Labour will bring it down as well. So what happens then is the question. And then I suppose we get to... I think a people's vote is actually likelier than a general election because it could offer a way out for everybody. Because the Brexiters, if they're, if the plan gets defeated, they think, well, let's put it to the people to see how hard a Brexit they want. Mm-hmm. It works for Remainers, of course, who've been wanting a people's vote for some time. The question, which hasn't really been discussed yet, but which could become much more potent, is how could that question possibly be no deal versus Remain? Yes, we'll come, that, on, we'll come. Yeah, we'll yeah, come. We'll yeah. come to people's vote in a little in in, yeah. in a minute. That, that's that, that's the, the all extremely interesting points. I just wanted to, uh, before we move on to that, still at the parliamentary stage. I mean, Catherine, is that a, is that a scenario that although are those scenarios that Jonathan's sketched out ones that you recognise for you know for for, for the sort of the, the the collapse of of whatever's left of Checkers when it comes back. To Parliament, and and also, I mean, also we shouldn't forget, I suppose, that Parliament has to vote twice, doesn't it? It has to vote on on whatever is going to, not just on the deal. It's been promised a meaningful vote on the deal, but it will also have to vote on whatever goes into into UK law at, at a later stage. So there's two opportunities for Parliament to sort of stick a a spanner in the works. Yes, that's that's right. Um, on that that point, um, so there's going to be a meaningful vote on the the, the divorce, the Article 50 um, agreement, plus the political declaration, and then assuming that meaningful vote were to go in favour of the government, then the whole body of the text of the withdrawal agreement, which remember includes the period of transition as well, which um, David Davis was so keen on. You've got that's got to be converted into UK law, and that will be take the form of yet another acronym, the WAVE, the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. And with that bill, of course, that will go through usual parliamentary processes. So it may be that people who feel that they've lost on the meaningful vote can have another go, a second bite of the cherry, so to speak, by looking at the WAVE. 
And so there are problems there. And it's worth bearing in mind, if you go back into the course of history, when we were joining the EU, there was um, a large parliamentary majority in favour of the principle of joining the EU, but a very slim majority in favour of the European Communities Act, which was the actual piece of legislation that took us in. And so you might see parallels occurring with us leaving. That's very interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, more pitfalls than we than, uh, than than we might imagine. Jennifer, just briefly before we move on to the people's vote, does um, I mean, does, does the prospect of the whole thing collapsing in, in, in Westminster alarm uh, Brussels at all? I think so. It, it's, it's a real risk. Uh, while the EU is, is quite confident in its own processes that you, you need about six to eight weeks, for the, the withdrawal agreement to pass through the European Parliament and, and all the various committees, that they're, they're fairly confident that can be done quickly. They even think negotiations could be delayed until December or from their point of view. But they do see that the real risk is on the UK side and, and there there is just huge uncertainty about how it will play out. Hmm. Interesting. OK, well, let's just then um, finally address this question um, that Jonathan raised of the of the second referendum or people's vote. Now, you know, just despite its apparent, it was clearly growing in, in, in appeal, the government remains implacably opposed to any kind of second vote. And there are obviously big problems associated with a second referendum, not least, as Jonathan said, what the question might be. Now, Catherine, that, that is a big issue, isn't it? I mean, a big sort of legal issue apart from anything else. I mean, if the question is, do you accept the final deal, then what happens if the answer is no? Is there any way that you could offer three alternatives, you know, sort of one remain, two accept the deal, or or three leave on on WTO terms, for example? Or some people are proposing a a two-stage vote. Vernon Bogdanor, I think, suggested you could have a two-stage vote with, you know, the first question being accept or reject the deal, and then if the answer was reject, uh, you could envisage maybe a fortnight later or something. A second vote was, you know, OK, you've rejected the deal. Do you now want a soft or hard Brexit? Uh, any or all of these possible or preferable? You ask such a difficult question <laughs> because it's it's the question is a huge issue. But can I just take it back one stage? Of course, before you even have a a second referendum, or dare I say even a third referendum, because of course we've the um, first referendum was in 1975, but before you have a further referendum, there's got to be an act of parliament, and as there was with the 2016 referendum, there's got to be an act of parliament. Now, that may be one of the caveats that people, MPs might vote for in the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill, the way, but there's got to be an act of parliament. The act of parliament's got to contain the question, so there's got to be a bill, and the bill will contain a draft question, which will then need to be tested by the Electoral Commission. And if you're thinking of a, what, any of the complex permutations that you've just suggested, that will take quite a lot of testing. You've also got to have in that bill and ultimately the Act a decision on the franchise, i.e. who's going to vote. Will it be the same franchises for the 2016 referendum or will those who couldn't vote then, for example, EU nationals living in the UK and UK nationals living in the EU, would they be allowed to vote? What is going to be the sort of voting that we're going to have? Is it just going to be a sort of uh, winner takes all as we had in 2016 or will there be some sort of single transferable vote? The reason I just outline all of this is because these are difficult questions that need to be addressed and they all take time and 
heard repeatedly, time isn't on time our is, side. Time is what we don't but have. Yeah. It looks it ha- we'd have to extend the Article 50 period if we were to go down that route. Hmm. Jonathan, I mean, you were you were saying you you, you thought a, a a a people's vote was actually a, a becoming an increasingly likely possibility. Um, any of Catherine's obstacles speak to you? All, all of them. Uh, uh, so Catherine is, is obviously absolutely right in, in all of those things that we will have to extend the Article 50 process. That's actually not so difficult. The EU has indicated on numerous occasions they'll be happy to do that. But of course, if the, without the government's support... It requires a political becomes, will to do it. Of course, it, yeah. I mean, the government has to request it. It can't... It's a really interesting question about whether the government's hand can be forced by various sort of parliamentary mechanisms. I mean, then you sort of also get to a no confidence motion if that becomes at all likely, whether Tories are prepared to sort of, you know, sort of bring down their own side, uh, so to speak. But to the, really, the, we do have to ask, you know, what happens if we have a no deal versus remain question? Because, as I say, the likeliest scenario for, for securing a people's vote is if Parliament's in deadlock. They Obviously, Czech has been rejected, uh, soft Brexit has been rejected, sea border gets rejected. So what do you have left? You go back to the people. But if you have a no-deal scenario, how can any responsible government give people the option of jumping over a cliff and bringing their neighbours with them at the same time as half the campaigners are promising a huge mattress at the bottom of that cliff, a soft landing. because they're not going to tell people that this equates to national suicide, even though it does. And that is why it is the most it would be the most dangerous thing a government has ever done. But at the same time, it's very difficult to see what the alternatives could be if there is no deal agreed. And I mean, if there is what, a deal agreed, the then Parliament be? agrees on it anyway. So yes, that's the problem. Yes, yes, yeah. But what could the what should the question be? In, in... Well, the, the I mean, I think the easiest question would be a deal versus remain. But if, as I say, if that deal has not been agreed because Parliament can't agree on that deal, then we just go around in circles. And I don't have an answer for that question. I'd be very grateful if Catherine and Jennifer does. <laughs> Jennifer, is there an answer? Well, Jennifer, is it, I mean, firstly, what what how much patience? does the EU have for all of this? I mean, at what point do Brussels and the and the other and the capitals simply say, OK, you know, uh, um, enough is enough? Uh, or is there a willingness to go along with with anything that might eventually mean that Britain does stay close or, or even stays? Well, I think if if, a, if another referendum was on, on the cards, I imagine and I'm, I'm speculating that EU leaders would allow some some time for this process to, to work out simply because we've heard so many times the expressions of regret and, and sadness that the UK is leaving. And I do think there would be a sense of, of sort of history weighing on, on leaders' minds. They wouldn't want to make a rash decision to, to push the UK out the door when there was still a, a question mark there. But however, I mean, as, as we keep coming back to you, the, the clock is, is ticking. And while Article 50 possibly could be extended for, for some time in order to, to let that process work through, there is the problem of the European elections in late May, sort of 20, 22nd to 25th of May, so not so long after the UK is due to leave the EU. And can you extend Article 50 beyond the European elections? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, people, people raise this point and, and say, well, then the UK would have to would have to run in those elections and would have to run elections to elect MEPs. So how quickly could that referendum be organised and, and, and how would that sort of play into those, those elections? And then you've also got the other dynamic of EU leaders wanting, um, wanting Brexit to be complete as a process and not wanting it to be, well, not wanting the negotiations on the withdrawal to be, to be hanging over. So it, also, it depends on the seriousness of, the, of, of what the government is asking for, whether it's a, a real possibility that the UK might think again or whether it's seen as something that's 
it's just a play for more time. And if it is a play for more negotiating time, then I'm, I'm afraid that it would get, get uh, short, short shrift. shrift. Yes. OK, excellent. Well, we're coming to the end. I just want to put you all on the spot very, very briefly. Now, I think what's clear if anything's clear from our discussions today, is that it's going to be very, very hard to tell what might happen to whatever deal that Theresa May comes back with to to Parliament. So I'm not going to ask you to speculate about that, but I would just like to ask you for a a uh, your your best estimate, percentage-wise, I guess, of no deal or some kind of deal. What happens to that deal when we come when it comes back to Parliament? Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. We can talk about another time. But Jonathan, no deal versus some kind of deal? Um, I will hold my nerve and say no chance of no deal. Absolutely no chance whatsoever. OK, Jennifer? I would say more like 70, 70 for a deal, 30 for no deal. OK, and Catherine? Yeah, I'm pretty much with Jennifer on that. I, okay. I still think that there is such a, an issue over resolving the concerns about the Northern Irish border. And as we saw in Salzburg, um, each side seems to be talking across each other rather than engaging with each mm. other at the moment. That there, I, While I think neither side wants the no deal scenario, it could accidentally occur. And that's why I'm closer to, to, to Jennifer than to Jonathan on okay, that. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed. That is it for this time, I'm afraid. Not for the first time, I think we can safely conclude all is clear as mud. Brexit means is back then, but not at the old weekly rhythm. So we're going to be back early next month, right after the Crunch October Summit and just before the Crunch November one, assuming, of course, it goes ahead. In the meantime, you can catch up with the weekly Brexit shenanigans on our sister podcast, Politics Weekly, before coming back to us for another deeper dive. My thanks then to Catherine, to Jennifer and Jonathan for joining me today. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley, the producer producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.